BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Jennifer Egan's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, was the kind of book that stayed with you. I'd remember snippets of it years later and wonder about the characters I'd met. The same was true, apparently, for Egan herself who's written a new novel featuring many of those who appeared in Goon Squad. The new book, The Candy House, stands on its own, though, as an exploration of what happens when we realize that our lives are not meaningful because they're unique, but because of their texture, of relationships, of the feeling of being alive. It's a stylish, fun, serious novel, and Jennifer Egan is coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Jennifer Egan's new novel, The Candy House, can be and is being read in many different ways. A follow-up to A Visit from the Goon Squad, an uncomfortably normal and familiar dystopia, a rendering of the infinite pain and pleasure of parent-child relationships, a commentary on social media, a pay-in to the power of fiction, and to my mind, it is all those things. Jennifer Egan is also a native daughter of San Francisco, a tremendous nonfiction writer, often for the New York Times Magazine, And she served a term as the president of the literary organization PEN America. I'm so, so happy that she's joining us right here in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I want to go right to the heart of what so many characters seem to be pondering and working through in this wonderful book. And that's that so much about human life can now be known through technology, through data collection, through statistics. And yet one of your characters, Lincoln, says quantifiability doesn't make human life any less remarkable or even less mysterious. Do you agree with that assessment? I do. I mean, I think one of the paradoxes that I was turning over in my mind as I as I thought about this book and worked on it is the way in which data both do and do not describe human experience. I mean, there's no question that it is useful. The multinational corporations that run social media and search engines wouldn't be profitable if if data were not useful. Uh, but at the same time, it's it it is so non-individuated that an individual human remains completely mysterious, uh, despite the fact that it, they might be categorizable in ways that are very useful. Um, And so that paradox really fascinated me. And the other thing about data that's kind of interesting is that we obviously are drowning in it. We have we can know 
as close to everything as we ever have. And yet we don't seem to be great at predicting things. And that's something that has always fascinated me. I mean, 9-11, complete shock. Election of Trump, complete shock, even to Trump. So the data also is not always easily legible, even though it does exist. So that was another paradox that really fascinated me. I also just feel like it's one of the most hopeful takes that I've read in in quite some time that, you know, if we act with the statistical tendencies of our identities, it means no more or no less than if we hadn't, you know, like you may be able to get me to buy a pair of Nikes, but that doesn't mean you've like breached my soul or something. I feel that very much. I mean, I feel like in my fiction, I keep coming up again and again against the question of how much technology has infiltrated our inner lives. Or that's a question I keep asking. But the the answer my books keep providing is not the one I think that they will. Because again and again, the stories that I'm telling seem to say there's something really inviolable about us, even as we may want to reveal it. And a lot of what I see in social media, for example, is a wish to be seen, to be known in a really deep, intimate way, which I think is very human. You know, we don't, there is an isolation about our individuality and a sense that no one can really know us, which is actually true. Um, But no matter how much exposure we may seek, we still have that uniqueness and and solitude and, and, you know, deep solitude. So... You know, the memory in this book and the way that you play with memory in it, and we'll get to some of the technology in a second, how do you think it's changed your own memory to have so many images, so much data, so many tweets and old emails that are just right there a few clicks away? Do you find your own memory of things changing as a result of having access to all those, you know, factual piece of information about the past? Well, I'm not someone who is on screens as much as others may be. But one thing I've always noticed about memory, which actually predates all of this technology, is how connected it always has been to images. So my mom was a great mom. um, And one of the ways in which she was great and is great is that she made photo albums. And I'm besieged with constant guilt over the fact that I (laughs) have not gotten through, I've only gotten through son one's (laughs) He's now a junior in college, so I'm way behind. Um, But those photo albums, which my brother and I used to pour over because these were narratives of our childhoods, I noticed that when I remember my childhood, sometimes what I'm remembering are actually those photo albums or the experiences that I seem to remember most strongly are connected to photos that ended up in those albums. So I think that we use images as mnemonic devices and therefore in a in a image glutted culture as which is what we now are there's no question it has to interact with our memories I, i'm not really sure how or whether i'm the best example of looking at that phenomenon since i you know i do fall for those montages that come along on my phone i'm not gonna lie i can get lost in a memory loop and then i think oh my god someone is actually p- putting my photos to music this is really kind of irritating but i fall for it <laughs> i mean it's hard especially you know that i think you're talking about on an iphone right they they create little videos for you and you can actually change the mood <laughs> you can and the music will change uh, along with it making you know happy memory seem sad or bittersweet or, or vice versa 
We're talking with Jennifer Egan, author of A Visit from the Goon Squad, about her new novel, The Candy House. And we're curious to hear from you. How has social media, the availability of constant documentation and photos changed your memory? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. So let's get to this sort of key device of the candy house, which, of course, is so wrapped up in memory. Maybe you can talk about the creation of Mandala. So Mandala is a company run by a man named Bix Boughton, whom we meet very briefly in A Visit from the Goon Squad, where he basically predicts the effects of social media in the early 90s. And I knew when I wrote that that he would actually go on to invent social media. And I think one reason I wanted to continue with some of these characters was exactly the fact that I knew things about them that the reader didn't know. So he invents social media, but then he he was looking for another big idea. And what he ends up coming up with, and this is sort of the through line of this new book, is a device called Own Your Unconscious that allows you to externalize the entirety of your consciousness starting at the moment of your birth. So basically all of your memories. And this can be just a personal device, which you can peruse, see way more than you consciously have remembered, understand things that may have happened when you were very young that that are very murky in your memory, um, and uh, have a kind of uh, hedge against a a traumatic brain injury or ultimately dementia. You can reinfuse this complete memory and and you know bolster what might be a failing memory. So there are a lot of great reasons to do this. There's also an ancillary possibility, which is to uh, to share all or part of that consciousness to a collective consciousness in exchange for access to that collective yourself. So this is basically the model of DNA information sharing. You, you have to give to get. Um, and this ends up becoming a much bigger deal than Bix Boughton ever imagined. And Many people do this, so there's a kind of swirling collective consciousness out there, which is all kinds of externalized anonymous memories. And there also inevitably is a resistance against that. So there are people who decide they don't want, not only do they not want to share, they don't want to be shared, which is what inevitably happens because so many people who have seen and perceived them have shared their memories. So these people begin to do something called elude And that means that they cast, they shed their identities altogether. They just give them up and they take on new identities and disappear in a sense. And they use what are known as proxies to impersonate them online so that no one knows they're gone except people who would have expected to see them physically. And just one more to add, the proxy, the best proxies are fiction writers. (laughs) But of course. (laughs) Because we're good at impersonating people. (laughs) I mean, I have to say both sides of this process, either seeing other people's consciousness and my own showing up in their consciousness, or the reverse, having somebody process the way that I process the world, are both truly the most horrifying things I can ever imagine. I, and yet the char- most of the characters, maybe none of them react with that true like, oh, my God, that's the worst, except for the eluders, right? Well, you know, it's funny because 
First of all, this machine didn't come into focus for me until pretty late in the process, I should say. I, I knew a lot about what I wanted the machine to do for me narratively before I really knew exactly what it would be. But I think, you know, what drew me into some of the into writing about it were as much things that were appealing as anything else. It was my own curiosity and kind of desire that made me imagine why people would use a machine like this. You know, and and I think we were just talking earlier about memory and photographs, and I sometimes feel frustrated that my memories are limited. And I actually have a really good memory for the past. But I, I often think, what about the 99.999% that I don't remember? Why do I go back to these specific moments? What were all of the moments around those moments? My curiosity about that as much as anything else, I think, drove the invention of this machine. So that, for me, seems to come before the kind of horrifying consequences of it. And, you know, that might just say something about me as a consumer. <laughs> Gosh, you know, it's just also so interesting because I I don't think I would want to go back to that many moments. And may, maybe there's just something about, you know, I like flowing forward with the course of time, you know? Well, I don't know why. That's an interesting thing. And I think maybe we're all different that way. I guess I have, I just always want to know more. If I feel like I'm limited, I want to get beyond those limits. And, and I think, too, this may come back to what motivates me as a writer generally, which is compl- a, a wish to use my unconscious to do interesting work that I absolutely cannot do if I'm lit- limited to my conscious mind. If I just sit down and think, okay, what kind of story am I going to write? Here are some ideas. I, I would not have a career. I-, I would not have a career as a writer. <laughs> I might be a lawyer or something, maybe a doctor, which would have been great. Um, but for me, fiction writing relies, I would say, 80% on accessing all the things I don't consciously know and harnessing them to do something interesting. So I'm reminded on a daily basis of how limited my conscious thinking is. And maybe that leads naturally to a curiosity about all the stuff that I don't consciously know. We're talking with Jennifer Egan about her new novel, The Candy House. And we would love to hear from you. How has social media, this availability of constant documentation photos, changed your memory? I don't mean remembering phone numbers. I mean deep memory. Give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Jennifer Egan about her new novel, The Candy House. And Jennifer, this book is a it's a sibling book, people have been calling it, too. A visit from the Goon Squad. Can you talk about the connection between this book and, and Goon Squad and how it has developed? Sure. I mean, I think the, the biggest connection, well, there are two connections. One is minor characters from Goon Squad become important in the Candy House, with a couple of exceptions. There are a couple of, of more important characters who do reappear in, in deeper ways. But on the whole, it's people we've glimpsed or in some cases only heard the names of. Um, and then the second connection is that the narrative approach is, I guess I would say, analogous in that, like Goon Squad, each chapter is about a different person. Each chapter stands completely on its own. And each chapter has, this is the most critical thing, a different kind of world and feel to it. And in The Candy House, even, I would say, a different genre in some cases. Like, there's a chapter that's clearly in the genre of spy stories. There's a chapter that I thought about explicitly as YA. It's like a stream of consciousness of a hyper-anxious 13-year-old girl. Um, I'm not sure what it says that that was one of my favorite chapters. Like, definitely top three. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. I still feel so connected to that that moment. It was very fun to write it. Um, So in that way, the two books are somewhat alike uh, in approach, and there's an overlap of characters. I I definitely don't call The Candy House a sequel because you certainly don't need to have read Goon Squad. And in fact, I think they might be even more fun going the other direction, Candy House to Goon Squad. And I did not reread A Visit from the Goon Squad until I was almost done with The Candy House because I didn't want it to influence it too much. But I actually waited a little too long because I had made all kinds of factual errors (laughs) in people's biographies. And some of them were actually a little hard to untangle. I had actually changed people's family configurations without even realizing it. So um, and and the other thing about Candy House is it's I guess if you like to think in terms of prequels and sequels, it's both. It goes back further in time than Goon Squad and it also reaches further into the future. How different was the process of writing this kind of novel from Manhattan Beach, your your last book, which had a a very a much more conventional sort of structure and and through line and arc. Very different. Um, I think the biggest difference actually was just in the amount of research that it took to write Manhattan Beach and the fact that Manhattan Beach takes place outside of my lifetime. So I don't use anything. I, I don't knowingly use my own life at all in my fiction. And I like the sense that I'm moving outside of what I know. Again, that feeling of sort of getting getting beyond my conscious thinking. Um, so that is a critical thing for me. Um, but I, uh, wait, I'm sorry. Remind me of where, where I'm going here. <laughs> well, we, we, let's, let's go to, uh, a couple of tweets just cause we have people with little details okay. coming in from goon squad that are, that are fun. Uh, drew tweets, speaking of memories, and this goes to the idea of using your own life or not speaking of memories. Here's one detail that stuck with me from goon squad, a wistful description of the scent of fennel mixed with fog in an empty lot in western San Francisco. I recall reading that and thinking, oh, this writer isn't a New Yorker. She's uh, from here. Do you have other of those, like, say, like now that you're back here, you know, where you grew up and visiting right now? Well, are- it's interesting. I'm Actually, that reminded me of where I was going. Sorry about that. Um, what I was saying was, and this question fits into it perfectly, I don't use facts from my life or people like me, but what I really rely on are times and places from my own past. So I grew up here in San Francisco. I went to Lowell High. And that gives me access, that that time as a teenager here gives me access to a lot of sensory information 
information, like the detail just mentioned, that is so useful when writing because time and place are really my entry point for, for fiction. That's what I start with. It's just like an atmosphere and a vibe. So it's so, in a way, it's so easy and such a joy and a pleasure to write about San Francisco because there's so much work I don't have to do to beef up my store of knowledge about this place. With Manhattan Beach, I had to basically, I had to imbibe all of that information using research. And that was the biggest difference between writing those two books. So, and try and squeeze it out of your subconscious. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to sort of acquire a new memory bank, which I did using oral history interviews, many of which I helped to conduct. Lots of you know, letters. Fiction is very useful. So much information compressed into fiction from a moment. But in both The Candy House and A Visit from the Goon Squad, I really am using times and places that I know. So there's a kind of ease and almost effortlessness to those atmospheres and those sensory details that is just, it, it makes the job so much easier. <laughs> that makes that makes sense to me. Yeah. Let's uh, bring in our first caller, Bob, in San Francisco. Talk about memory. Hi, Bob. Hi. Uh, decades ago when we were working on what, what on, on this medium, which before the internet was called hypermedia, um, we recognized that there were two potential benefits and also dangers of the stuff. The first was that as close as you got to having uh, an experience that simulated reality, you would also be having experiences that would re-sculpt memory. And so it could really have very, very profound effects on memory for both good and bad. The other thing is that and I think it's becoming more true now, as this stuff really becomes convincing, um, it has a danger because if you've ever looked at a photograph of somebody who's died, you have this experience where a lot of people have an experience. They feel that they can almost reach out and touch with them, touch mm -hmm. them. But what happens when it actually becomes almost there? In that case, you feel like you're a ghost, that you can't communicate with people who are still around. Yeah. Anyway, comment. Hey, thank you, Bob, for that. Well, that gets at something that fascinates me about images generally, and image culture has been an obsession of mine since my first book, which really is that images are both a presence and an absence. You are looking at something, and so it is invoked and present, and yet it is also absent. So there's a paradox inherent in image consumption that I think powers a lot of our relationship to image culture and is one reason that images are so useful for advertising, let's say, or just engagement, as we would now call it. <laughs> um, there is a there is a rush of of presence and excitement, followed by a kind of emptiness sometimes. And I really feel this about images of people who are no longer with us. It, it's a reminder that they're not there. And I even feel this way when I look at images of my kids be, as little kids, and they're alive and well. Um, but I feel a kind of, I feel both, ah, oh, yes, and then a kind of, ah, oh, a sort of longing. And that longing is extremely useful to all kinds of, um, you know, smart people who are trying to figure out how to get us to do things. Um, but, you know, images are are very complicated things. Almost nothing more painful than being in like a hotel room somewhere far away from your kids looking at pictures of them. You know, you can't help, you can't stop yourself, but it's also like, oh. Exactly. Hurts. So I'm I'm a little careful about about looking at pictures and especially um, like home movies, that kind of thing. I I find them so intense that I I I don't necessarily always want to consume those. 
There's also, I've recorded a bunch of my kids' audio too. And it's like when you can, it is different from the image, but it's like you forget what their little voices sounded like. And without the pairing of the image, it's almost can be um, like, yeah, too much, like you're saying. It's like yeah, I used to do that secretly in the car when they would be like singing and things. I would be pretending to, t- to take a video of something outside the window, but the video was really recording their voices. So I have a lot of that, but I'm very reluctant to listen to it. And I and again, because they're both boys and they have you know big voices now, they're men. And I sometimes think, what were those little voices like? So it's, you know, the memory is, it, it evokes so many things. But I also want to mention something else that really fascinates me, which is the kind of hunger that is implicit in mass media and image culture. And I think that presence that is also in absence is a big part of that hunger. And I think another part of it, and this is something I get in get to a lot in The Candy House, is the sense of mediation, the sense of distance that is inherent in looking at an image creates a kind of wish for authentic experience, something that's, you know, real, whatever that means. And the meaning is you know mm-hmm. changing all the time. And I think that that craving for authenticity is a complicated fact of our contemporary lives because mass media is always trying to satisfy that craving. But everything it has to offer is always mediated. And so what we get are ever more artificial simulacra of quote unquote authentic experience. And again, there's this hunger that's an, uh, that is inherent in all of it and, and dissatisfaction. Yeah. We're talking with Jennifer Egan, author of a new book, The Candy House, of course, also the author of A Visit from the Goon Squad. We'd love to hear from you. What would you like to ask Jennifer Egan or here's a here's a one for you. Who's the character from Goon Squad you most wanted to read more about? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, we were just talking about parents and, and our children. And one of the most fascinating dimensions of this book is that a lot of the chapters involve kind of kids looking back at their parents, turning the gaze back on the parents. And, you know, you said your children now are, are grown men. They're in, you know, young, young men. Do you find the way your children sort of read your read you back to you being discomforting or do you like it? You like to sort of see yourself in their eyes. You know, I don't know exactly how I look in their eyes. So I I don't know. Um, But I'm struck by how deep and yet totally limited the parent-child perspective is. Mm -hmm. I think about it more in terms of my father and, and actually generally the way in which a parent is such a an iconic and and I don't godlike is such a charged term, but a really sort of uh, beyond normal reality kind of figure in a child's world. And yet, of course, every parent is just a regular person. And the fact that as a child, we come into the world seeing them that way and in a certain way can never really not see them that way is such a gigantic limitation on how we can know them. And my father actually died in an accident when he was 60. And so I, I find myself thinking that if if I if he had lived longer, maybe I would have come to understand him as a as a regular person, but I never will. And 
so and in a way, I I guess maybe there's a way in which we don't necessarily want to know our parents as real people. We want to know them as our parents. But I think a lot about those relationships and the ways in which they are cordoned off from they're they are limited in a perspective that is so extreme that it's difficult to get outside of it. So in some ways, the memory cube of this book is this kind of wish fulfillment, though, because kids can go back and experience their parents, not as their parents, but as the people they were. Absolutely. It's a total wish fulfillment, although, as you point out, there's a kind of horror to this, and we see it in the book. So there's a moment where a young, actually, she's not that young anymore, a woman named Roxy, who is actually a heroin addict, um, and feels that her future doesn't hold much for her. She's been in recovery for so long, it doesn't seem to really hold. And so she um, ultimately decides to externalize her memory in part to revisit this very special trip that she took with her father to England when she was a teenager. And what she wants to do is see herself as she was then through his eyes as a kind of movie heroin in a way, uh, not heroin of the sort that is plaguing her, obviously. But at an earlier point, she's able to look through his eyes at herself. And she wants to, she has expectations of experience, a kind, a kind of joy in doing this. But what she finds is that it's awful because what he's really, there's such a deep intimacy to one's personal thoughts. And she finds that, first of all, he's thinking about his very young girlfriend lying in bed. He's upset because the dog is, you know, just pooped by the pool. Um, and then the the thing that almost kills her is that he reflects on how much he wishes he hadn't invited her on this trip to England. He hasn't even picked her up to go to the airport yet. So this this hopeful moment of of feeling the connection between them becomes a nightmare of realizing he didn't even want to be with her. And she rips off the headset and feels almost as if she can't go on, but in the end consoles herself and sort of builds herself back up by reminding herself that the magic of that trip didn't really start until they were on the plane. So it's a wishful, it gets at exactly what I was saying, which is there's a wish to know one's parents better. And yet there is a difficulty in being inside someone's head, really. Mm-hmm. And she comes up against that. Time and again in this book, there are pe- we meet people who are at a point where they're breaking with their previous life or, or there's a big disjuncture. Um, we see, get to see Lou Klein, the record producer, uh, having having one of these moments among, among others. And thinking about my own parents, you know, setting out for California, you know, they just like, left Mexico, left Massachusetts, you know, and we're just like, my mom changed her name. We're like, all right, going to California, you know. How do you see the possibility of still doing that? It seems like the eluders kind of are a gesture towards that, how hard it is now to break with our previous selves and, and be somebody new in a new place, which at least back in the 60s or 70s might have might very well have been California. Well, that's an interesting question. I've always been interested in people reinventing themselves. And even in my story collection, I'm often writing about people traveling because when people are outside of their normal lives, they sometimes kind of take on identities that they might not be able to assume in their normal lives where people expect certain kinds of behavior from them. So that has always really interested me. And I think it's a very American quality in a certain way that this country has always offered you know, and hopefully always will, a, a possibility of reinvention and actually deciding what you want to be rather than being defined by your past. I feel like in a way, technology offers us 
even more opportunities to do that. I mean, the nature of social media is, is I mean, to thrive as a social media entity, you have to be good at assuming a persona and and performing that persona. Well, that's, that is self-invention. Even if the persona you're performing is some kind of approximation of yourself, it actually is still performative. So there's a kind of flexibility about identity inherent in that. But on the flip side, there's also a way in which it's very hard to escape anything you've done that has a digital component because it's all findable. So I think about that because sometimes I think, oh, my God, you know, how do you how do you move on when everything you've done has been cataloged and is findable? And that seems really novel and kind of scary. But then I think about, you know, small town life. I'm always reading 19th century fiction. You know, try moving on when you live in a little town where everyone has known you since you were born. So I, I think some of those limitations that feel new are, are not really that new. But you could always, you know, get on a ship, go to California for the gold rush, right? I mean, you could always like stri- you know, strike out for the territories kind of thing. And that seems more and more difficult, at least from my perspective, for, for people who truly want to be like a new life. seems harder. I think that may be true. I mean, I think, and and I can, I think that's what powers the the eluders in the candy house is the the wish to actually start over seems to involve no longer being yourself, which is a very extreme choice. One person likens it to an animal gnawing off its leg to escape a trap. So it's a lot to give up for freedom, your entire identity. But I'm positing (laughs) and, you know, somewhat in fun uh, that people are willing to do it and that it's that sense of infinite possibility and reinvention that they are craving. We're talking with Jennifer Egan, author of A Visit from the Goon Squad, about her new novel, its sibling, The Candy House. Her other novels include The Invisible Circus, The Keep, and of course, one of my favorites, Manhattan Beach. She was recently president of the Penn America Center. We'd love to hear from you. How has uh, social media changed your memory? What would you like to ask Jennifer Egan about writing and life? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Remember, you could also ask us about the character from Goon Squad you most wanted to read about. Number's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We'll be back with more from Jennifer Egan after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with novelist Jennifer Egan about her new book, The Candy House. Um, Jennifer, you opened this new book with Bix Boughton, who is the black tech genius who invents sort of the, the memory cube through his company, Mandala. You also write, you know, from the perspective of an autistic man in the, in the book. And in this particular literary era, it kind of feels like a statement to me about authorial freedom. Did it feel that way to you or were you just sort of following your your curiosity? I think it well, in a way, both. I wrote both of the the first drafts of both of those chapters in 2012 and 2013, when in some ways the the issue of, um, you know, of, of representing people different from oneself felt less vexed than it is now. Uh, my method has always been to work away from what I know because I'm driven very much by curiosity and a wish to discover and and also a kind of allergy to writing about myself. I go very cold. So I'm always outside of my own perspective. I love writing from a male point of view. Um, and so that that feels very natural to me. When I returned to this material and typed it up in 20 you know, 16, 17, I felt the weight of that kind of curiosity and moving outside of my realm into realms that some might say I have no right to venture into. That felt very weighty. Uh, but I, I dealt with it in the way that I always do, which is through due diligence. You know, if I'm writing outside of my sphere of knowledge, I have to get feedback from other people who can help me understand where I've made mistakes. And that's always part of my process. Um, so in the case of Lincoln, who I guess we would call um, neuroatypical, mm-hmm. um, I had already written about him as a more peripheral character in A Visit from the Goon Squad. And I have a one of my closest friends is actually a therapist who works with kids like Lincoln. She helped me a lot. I had made mistakes. She helped me with the chapter about Bix, which felt like a really... Um, a, a serious and and delicate undertaking in our current landscape, a, a white woman writing from the point of view of a black man. I gave this chapter to many black friends, male, female, straight and gay, to give me their feedback. And it was extremely not just helpful. It was essential. I mean, I think one of the, the big questions, though, is whether there the system would actually allow a black tech titan in this way. Right. That was one of the things that my black readers pointed out to me very strongly, like, how did he do it? And it was something that maybe I hadn't focused enough on before I responded to that feedback. But I found it, I I guess my point of connection with that, first of all, he's clearly exceptional. And this is fiction. So I can make things happen (laughs) that might not happen in real life, which is which is one of the joys of it. But I also felt like, you know, Bix is younger than I am, but he was up against some of the feeling that I had as a young female writer in a world in which male writers were tremendously dominant. And it was almost inconceivable that a woman would really be mentioned in their ranks, you know. So I I guess what I'm always using 
in writing about people who are different from myself, which is pretty much everyone I write about, is empathy, which is critical. It's the job of fiction in one word, and extrapolation, because I have the tools within my own experience to venture beyond it with help always and due diligence. Um, I mean, we're talking about really serious matters of identity, but I do, you know, I, I have tech friends who looked at this. I have a tenured professor friend who had a lot of comments about the dialogue among the professors in this discussion that group. That must have been painful, actually. <laughs> well, she was very helpful. She just said, you know, this is something academics don't do with each other. You know, so there were, the, I have to do this from every direction, and I'm sure there are still things I've gotten wrong, by the way. Um, but it's it's just part of responsibly venturing outside of my experience in ways that won't seem clangingly wrong to people who know more than I do about whatever I'm writing about. But I would go further and say, you know, I really do see the job of fiction as that of going inside the consciousnesses of other people. That's what fiction delivers. And for me, that's what it delivers to me as a writer is the chance to do that. So there's a strong trend toward autofiction out there and more power to them. Whatever creates good work is what we all want to be doing. And from the reader's point of view, we just want to read something good. But for me, autofiction is not a possibility. There's no entry point for me there. So this is my methodology. I'm stuck with it. And as long as they let me do it, <laughs> I'll keep doing it. <laughs> you know, one of our listeners, Ira, writes in to say, you've said your fiction is largely an unconscious unfolding, which I imagine surprises you every time you sit down to write. How much of your novels is structured before you start? Do you have a general outline? And how much does it shift? And I wonder if you, there's probably some connections to your your last answer, too, about watching these consciousnesses emerge on the page? Well, the key word is surprise. Um, what I'm looking for is surprise. And I, my whole method is geared toward finding those surprises. And the, the first step is I write fiction by hand as a journalist all on a, on a screen. But I'm trying to enter into a non-judgmental more meditative state of mind where I'm just doing it and seeing what comes along. I think it's very much like improvisation, although I haven't done theatrical or musical improvisation, but I'm I'm looking for sort of a line of possibility that feels alive, and I'm just pushing into that. And my handwriting is dreadful, so it's actually very hard for me to see what I'm doing as I do it. That's good until I try, I'm trying to read it later. Um, I read over what I've done the very next day to re-enter the flow, and I keep going. And I try to do five pages a day, five to seven. Five handwritten pages yeah. a day. When when the project is done, and in the case of a book like The Candy House, that's that's a chapter, not a whole book. But in the case of Manhattan Beach, that was 28 legal pads full of handwriting that took a year and a half. <laughs> I type it up. Um, and then I read it. That's probably the hardest part because now I'm subjecting to a typed typed manuscript what has been created in this very raw, organic, sloppy way. And it's painful. But what I'm looking for is what feels alive, what feels interesting, what feels surprising. And I try to take stock of what it feels like it could be. That's when I first try to identify it. And then I make my first outline, and it's a revision outline, and it's about cataloging what's there, 
figuring out what it seems like it could be and then making a very, you know, analytical series of, of bullet points about what steps I need to take to get it one step closer. And then I start revising, which I tend to do by hand on hard copies, again, hoping for that meditative, more unconscious awareness that brings me better material. And when I finish another draft, I read it through and I make another outline. And I should mention that I've tried to really reveal this process on my new website for The Candy House, which lets you look at the first page of each chapter as it is published. And if you hover over the first paragraph, it peels away and shows you a marked up typed manuscript um, of the same paragraph. And if you hover over that, you're back to my handwritten first draft with a date and sometimes little I usually note how many pages I wrote that day and there's one where it says yay with, with an exclamation point. <laughs> Did you know you were going to do that? Did you set that up? As no, a- it came about kind of naturally as I talked to these two amazing designers, um, Spencer Hansen and Noah Scalen, who have helped me make now three websites and we were trying to talk about what kind of website would make sense for this book. There's a lot of role-playing gaming in this book, uh, gra- thoughts about graph paper worlds that lead into imaginative realms. So we felt like we wanted to have some kind of interaction between physical handmade artifacts and the kind of um, world travel, sort of, you know, passing through portals from one genre to another, which is the experience I was trying to create in the book. So it just kind of came about naturally. One fun fact I know about you sitting in this chair here is that you rode a train from Chicago to San Francisco. Are you doing that? You're just riding train around on the on this book tour here to see America or You know, it for a lot of reasons. I mean, one is I am I feel hysterical about climate change and I've come to a point where I, I guess one thing that's been useful for me about about the COVID era is questioning my willingness to jump on and off planes to get places when I feel so concerned about these this devastation. So really, I guess, uh, interrogating my behavior a little more closely and wondering why it doesn't reflect my beliefs more strongly. Um, so I'm trying to travel on trains whenever I can and will be doing that going forward. But the other thing is, it's spatially, it's really a joy to actually see what connects places. And I feel like, at least speaking personally, that's something I had really lost touch with. Mm-hmm. I mean, the expression flyover country is so objectionable. I mean, if you think about that from the point of view of the places being, you know, uh, flown over, it's really obnoxious. I mean, and so I love this feeling of seeing what is between and in a way earning the distance I'm traveling by really experiencing that distance. It's been it's been fun. I mean, it it takes a lot of time and it's also way more expensive than I would like it to be. So we, we have incentivized air travel in all kinds of ways that are really complicated. I think also for this book, it felt great to do this because If I was thinking about time as a kind of big meditative uh, concept for a visit from the Goon Squad, I was thinking about space in the candy house and the way that digital experience has changed our relationship to space and and technology generally. So how are you thinking about that? Well, you know, we we talk Well, in a way, COVID has taught us this so much. You know, we meet, we um, we 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 are together in a space that doesn't exist 
all the time. We use the word space to often refer to digital realms where business opportunities are taking place. You know, I'm doing this in this space. What does that mean? It used to mean a physical place or it meant outer space. But I love thinking about how technology impacts language or makes it obsolete and forces us to redefine it. And also, you know, the both Goon Squad and The Candy House are really books about perspective. We are constantly going into different perspectives. And in a way, that's also a very spatial journey in the sense that the world looks very different from one perspective than it does from another. So that was a, a concept that I had in my mind a lot. Um, and and back to the role-playing games, what I love about those games is that paper and pen are representing worlds and an enormous amount of imaginative space is compressed into small handmade artifacts. And again, it becomes a an interrogation of space and what it means to us. So you're telling me you've played some Dungeons and Dragons? Well, I'm actually not exactly. I have a little bit. Um, I, have, I wanted to know character. You know what you hope to roll. Very well, high on I did, charisma. Okay, this is this is what I have done, which is not exactly the same. I've LARPed a little bit. <laughs> For those who don't know what that is, that's probably the funniest thing that anyone has ever said. L- live action role playing. No way. Okay, I did it with my son. We went to something called Night Realms, which is at a um an old uh Girl Scout camp in New Jersey where once a month regular people come and take on ongoing roles of, you know, all kinds of creatures, human and not, and they have adventures that are somewhat controlled narratively by the people who run Night Realms. And this, as a storytelling device, this is, by the way, so fascinating. Anyway, so my my younger son, who was really into role-playing games, wanted to do this, and he had to have an adult with him because he was a minor. So he was being a non, let's say, a non-player character, an NPC. And you can do that for free because there you need a lot of NPCs to enact these scenarios. And often right, you just say, "Go over to the tavern, right? Young go to the bard. Tavern. You're yeah. a monster, whatever." So initially, he said, "I want you to be an NPC too. I want you to experience." it. So I've never acted. So there I was being an NPC. And the the role I best remember was as a bereaved mother whose child has disappeared, children, and actually turns out been eaten by a monster. And I had to run around the Girl Scout camp through the snow yelling for my children, (laughs) one of whom was actually played by my actual child who was lying bloody in the snow, but I never saw that. Anyway, Raul deemed me a very subpar actress. (laughs) He said, Mom, you're really not a good actress. And it's true. I've never really acted. Um, But that was a real adventure. um, And I did it for a whole day. I'm slightly disappointed you weren't like an orc or something, you know? One reason I wasn't an orc is that I had to engage in battles, which is a lot of what this is. You have to, there's a certain way of scoring. Like if someone hits you or, you know, play hits you with a sword, you have to be kind of scoring it as it happens. And I really felt insecure about doing that. So I shied away from those roles. Um, However, I, I found it in a couple of moments a really magical experience. And one moment I remember is walking into a clearing of trees in the snow and seeing a naiad, which was a woman completely covered in blue. I think naiads are sea creatures, maybe. 
And I had a strange moment of feeling like I actually was in a fantastical world with a fantastical creature. And in that moment, I so understood why people do this. You know, one of the things that that makes me think about is that, you know, the the opposite of cyberspace is literally just any physical space, whether that's like, you know, a dock outside the Crandell Country Club or it's, you know, in the Northern California Redwoods. Is there a place that you go back to in your mind, maybe here in San Francisco, when you try to think about like, I want to I want to really imagine a, a, a space that I have a ton of memories carved into? I mean, San Francisco overall feels like that space. I think I, another reason I'm obsessed with with physical space is that it is my portal into writing fiction. I can have all the ideas in the world and I tend toward the abstract in my thinking, but I can't start writing until I feel a sense of time, place, and atmosphere. So right now I'm actually trying to write about San Francisco in a, in a more long-term way. And I guess what I think about probably the most, I don't know if it's a specific place so much as just the vibe of Fog, foghorns, the omnipresence of water, the kind of dripping trees amidst fog. It's very noir, really. Um, but that 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 vibe is so alive for me as from, I guess, a childhood of growing up here and, and moving through that fog. Um, but the space that I'm thinking about really varies with what I'm working on. And that's almost by definition, because it's it's being in a new physical space mentally with all of the atmospheric details that lets me enter into a new fictional world. And when I say that I have more projects in mind, all I really mean are is that I have more times and places that feel alive to me that I want to write about. So 1950s San Francisco, where does your character, where's your character going to live here? You know, I'm a little reluctant to say much about that project because, first of all, I'm not sure. I've kind of hit a wall with it, and I need to type it up and read it and see what I've got. But I'll just tell you one detail since I do have a direct answer to your question, and I don't want to withhold it. I think he lives in a kind of – he lives in a little space adjacent to a house in Seacliff, which, of course, is a very foggy place. (laughs) (laughs) Foggy and Tony. Um, (laughs) You know, Laura tweets, Jennifer Egan talking about her writing process is so inspirational and supportive to me as a writer currently stuck in several projects. Thank you for this illuminating conversation. Jennifer Egan, it is always just such a such a pleasure to talk with you. New novel, Candy House. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a delight. Thanks for having me. We have been talking with Jenny Egan about her new book, The Candy House. Go get it. Read it. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.